Good morning, everyone. How are you doing on this last day of winter? Awesome. Um, as I read the, the Gospels, one of my favorite stories is a story that takes place in, in the book of Luke. Luke recounts this story of Jesus. It's the only place that we read it in all the Gospels. It's in Luke chapter 7. And Jesus is walking along with his disciples, and they come to this little town. And there's a crowd around him, too, that's following Jesus. They come to this little town called Nain. It's the only town that, time that this town gets mentioned in all of the Gospels. And as they get to this city, this little town, out of the city comes a procession, and it's a funeral procession. And there's a young man, his body being carried out by these people out of the city, most likely to a tomb where they're going to lay him. And along with him, weeping, of course, is his mother, who the, the text identifies as a widow, and this is her only son. So I know how Jesus finds out if he, if he you know, just... God tells him in that moment, or if he, he talks to people and he finds out that this widow has had an only son who's died. And Jesus looks at the woman and he says to her, do not weep with compassion. And then he comes up to, to this man that's being carried to his body and he touches him and he says, young man, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And then the text tells us that Jesus gave him back to his mother. And I, lo- I love that phrase. It gave him back to his mother. Because what's happening here is we have, have a woman who, in this culture, to be a woman without a man in the world is a really difficult, vulnerable place. You have no one to care for you, no one to provide for you. You're basically alone in the world. Well, thankfully, this woman had a son, right? When her, she lost her husband, she had a son who would grow up and, and would take care of her and be the man of her life. But what's happened now? Her only son has been lost. And when Jesus does this, when he gives this man back to his mother, what he's actually doing there is showing us the heart of God that has been displayed for us in the Bible from beginning to end. And it's the heart of God, which is father to the fatherless and protector of widows. Here we have God himself caring for a woman who's vulnerable and alone in the world, and one of the most vulnerable people, a widow. This month and the, the four, first four months of this year, we're looking at our mission statement as a church, which is up here in the picture. If you want to recite it with me, you can. It's to be a people who embody and proclaim the life-giving fullness of the gospel. And this month, we're trying to answer the question, what does it mean, what does it look like to embody the gospel? Not just to speak the gospel, but to actually live it out and to embody it. And we've been looking closely at James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, where we find three indispensable tests of true religion. So James says, this is what true religion looks like. If, you're, if you claim to know God, if you claim to follow him, if you claim to worship him, this is what it will look like. And the first thing he says is, Gracious speech, verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, doesn't control the way he speaks to others, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And the second, we talked about that last week, the second is generous love in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to show generous love to the most vulnerable people around us. We're going to look at that more deeply today. And then next week, 
We'll look at this third test, which is holy living. James 127, the last part of that verse, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So when Jesus talks about visiting orphans, excuse me, when James speaks about visiting orphans and widows in their affliction, he's tapping in, just like Jesus in that story of the, of the widow from Nain and resurrecting that young man. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus doesn't bring a whole lot of people back to life. There's a little girl he brings back to life. There's Lazarus he brings back to life. And there's this young man. So there's, it's, it's not something he goes around and just does all the time, or at least we don't have all the stories of it. So in this moment, when he raises this man back up, he is showing and showing God's character. And James does that same thing here by tapping into an entire biblical story. And we know that the Bible is a book that reveals God's character to us. So James is tapping here into God's very character. And true religion, he says, truly knowing God, truly being connected with God in a way that actually affects how we live, how we act, how we relate to others in this world. True religion imitates God's character, and in particular, how he thinks about and treats the most vulnerable. So we look at the Old Testament, Psalm 68, 5 says, the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Deuteronomy chapter 10, for The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, which is an Old Testament way of saying the immigrant and the refugee. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then Psalm 10, verse 4, to you... Lord, Yahweh, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. And there's a lot more of those verses and examples of of that heart and character of God in the Old Testament especially. God, God advocates for what Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York, calls the quartet of the vulnerable. The quartet of the vulnerable. The widows, the orphans, the poor, and the sojourners. And God advocates for them and loves them and stands up for them. And because of that, he commands us to do the same. He calls his people to imitate his care for them. So we're going to go back to Deuteronomy 10, which we just looked at a minute ago. For the Lord, Yahweh, your God, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, gives him food and clothing, Period. Now command, love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then a few hundred years later, anticipating James, is the prophet Isaiah, who writes several hundred years before James and does just like James. He calls Israel to account and tells them basically to stop faking their religion. Stop just going through the motions like observing the Sabbath and and going through all these fasts. Instead of faking your religion, actually do the works of true religion. This is Isaiah 58. Is not this the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke? Those are yokes of oppression. To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke or yokes of slavery. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own 
flesh. You can hear even the echoes of Jesus' own words from Matthew 25. And so we come back to James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And again, Tim Keller has pointed this out. He says, if you aren't intensely concerned for the quartet of the vulnerable, the, the poor, the, the uh, widows, the orphans, and the sojourners. If you are not intensely concerned for the quartet of the vulnerable, it is a sign your heart is not right with God. So the scripture reading for this morning that Vicki read so eloquently for us makes this point clear. It's perhaps the most poignant, maybe the most sobering teaching of Jesus. It's the story of the sheep and the goats from Matthew chapter 25. So the scene is that of the final judgment. When Jesus, who's the Son of Man, will sit on a throne and will judge all the peoples of the world. And he's going to act like a shepherd. And so as the people come to him, he'll, he will send some to be on his right, the sheep, and he'll send others to be on his left, the goats. Sorry, folks, you're the goats this morning. I always sit on the left side, too. I might have to fix that. He then addresses the sheep. And he rewards them. He says, come, come into eternal life. You who are blessed, he calls them blessed. He says to them, you, you've earned this. You re- you're rewarded because you've fed the hungry and you've given drink to the thirsty and you've welcomed the stranger and you, you've clothed the naked and you've visited those who have been sick or in prison. And when you did that, you, you visited me and loved me. And then he addresses the goats in like fashion and He denies them reward because they didn't do all of those things that those on his right hand had done. And let me just give you three observations about this passage that sometimes we miss. And the first is this, that for both groups, for both the sheep and the goats, they're both surprised by the judgment they receive. Both groups are like, what? What are you talking about, Jesus? Verse 37, Lord... When do we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And then in verse 44, the the goats look at him and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or or sick or in prison and, and did not minister to you? We never saw you. What are you talking about? Both of them are surprised. So in other words, what what we should take from that is that if we read this story and we automatically think to ourselves, boy, I'm glad I'm not a goat then we might be in some trouble. We might actually be like the Pharisee that Jesus talks about who stands in the temple and prays to God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not a degenerate rabble like that guy over there. I'm glad I'm not a sinner. I'm glad I've got it all together, God. Thank you so much for making me so awesome. And Jesus says about that guy, he's going to go down to his home not justified, not right with God. So we must be careful that our self-assurance doesn't catch us off guard in the end. So this story requires us to hear it, to read it, to let it sit on us with humility. And say, which one am I? Which side am I on? Second, the second observation is that there's really only two articulated differences in the story between the sheep and the goats. And the first difference is in their actions toward the vulnerable. That is, towards the hungry and the thirsty and the sick and the the naked and the imprisoned. 
The question is whether or not they were merciful to those who were the most vulnerable. And if they weren't or if they are, that is the standard on which these people are judged. And we can put ourselves in that camp. That's the standard on which they're judged. And the second difference is really kind of keys in on that same one, and it's Jesus' demeanor towards each group based on their actions. One received receives blessing. One receives a welcome into the kingdom and into Jesus' presence, into eternal life. And the other receives a curse and a quick exit from the presence of Christ into eternal judgment. Those are the only two differences in the story. And the final observation and then in this story is that Jesus does something profound which we often miss. What he does is so profound, we kind of overlook, at, overlook it, I think usually because we're thinking about ourselves. What he's doing profoundly is that he's identifying with the most vulnerable. He's identifying those that he calls the least of these, my brothers and sisters. And what he's saying is that when we deal with those who are in need, when we, we deal with him, when we love those who are in need, we love Jesus. When we show mercy to those who are in need, we show mercy to Jesus because he identifies with them. He is close to them. When we ignore them or when we spite them or when we disdain them, we are doing the same to Jesus because he identifies with them. And what we can learn from that too is that if you want to be near Jesus, go near the vulnerable. Go near the poor and the orphans and the widows because that's exactly where Jesus is. And the homeless man on the street, and the foster kid who needs a roof over her head, and the homebound widow, or the sick in the hospital, or the addict. Jesus does not leave these people alone in their suffering. He's right there with him, with them, and he wants us to be there too. Those who truly know Jesus will show their love for him by loving the most vulnerable. But how? How do we do that? Well, it's actually really not difficult to get our head around this, brothers and sisters. This isn't, it's it's not rocket science. The issue, though, is that our hearts and our heads are a long way away often. And our hearts usually struggle to get on board because what it means is that we actually have to take a loss. What it means is that we actually have to sacrifice. We have to give something up. We have to suffer Maybe even get our hearts broken because we love someone that's not going to love us back or is just going to take from us. But in the scriptures, we don't actually have to look far to find a picture of what it looks like to embody the gospel through generous love to the most vulnerable. So if you have your Bibles, I'll encourage you to open to John chapter 1, verse 14, which just in a nutshell gives us a beautiful picture of Jesus Christ himself embodying the gospel for us. In John 1.14, this is what is written. And the Word, speaking of Jesus Christ, the Word of God incarnate, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what we see in this short verse is that Jesus perfectly embodies the gospel. 
Jesus perfectly embodies the gospel. He does that through what theologians have often called incarnation. And the word became flesh. What do you call chili with meat in it? Chili con carne, right? So carne means flesh. Incarnation literally means enfleshment. The word became flesh. The word took on a human body and human nature. He became one of us. The eternal son of God became a living, breathing, flesh and bone human being. You can't get any more embodied than that. So we're talking about embodying the gospel. Jesus does it perfectly when he takes our humanity on himself. Okay, when you think about our big mission topic then, embodying and proclaiming the gospel, embodying the gospel, incarnation is the epitome of embodiment. Because in the incarnation, Jesus became one of us. He identified with us, with you and with me. So he was incarnated. The second thing, though, that we see here that's important is that he became among us. He, his presence, incarnational presence, is the message translation, which you all know and love, I'm sure, puts it like this. Eugene Peterson, when he translated, I love verse, verse 14 in his translation. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. And I love that. Like he set up, he bought the apartment or the house next door. The flat right above you. He, he, he rented an apartment in the projects. Jesus came and he set up shop. He pitched his tent right next to us. He moved into the neighborhood. He didn't just stay in heaven and wave his magic wand to save us. He came close. He reached out and touched us and grabbed our hand. He humbled himself and came down, taking on frail humanity, suffering and even dying in our place, as Philippians 2 so beautifully puts it. Though he was God, and I would argue that that could be translated, because he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. In short, Jesus was not afraid of getting his hands dirty. He wasn't afraid of getting in with the people, of getting right up next to us despite our ugliness. And our brokenness, our rebellion, our constant ingratitude. Jesus wasn't afraid of being with us. Even though we were unclean, he wasn't afraid to touch us. Even though we were outcasts, he wasn't afraid to come sit at the lunch table with us when nobody would. He loved us perfectly. And so in the incarnation, we see God's character, his glory on display. And what his glory looks like is incarnational presence with us, God with us. So Jesus perfectly embodied the gospel. And I'm going to go now to one of my other favorite verses in the New Testament, Romans 8.29, just a couple books to the right there. Romans 8.29 shows that we are becoming like Jesus. So Jesus perfectly embodied the gospel, and now we are to embody the gospel because we're becoming like Jesus. Romans 8.29, Paul writes very clearly that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, God is in the business of making you and me look like Jesus. 
That's what he wants to do with us, is make us more like Jesus. But how does he do this? How do we actually become more like Jesus? Let me give you two words. I've given you a lot of words so far. I'm going to give you two more. Remember these. First of all, the word is behold. The second word is imitate. Behold and imitate. So to become like Jesus, we must first look to Jesus. We must first behold him. And we can do this because he's given us a book that is all about him. To look at Jesus, we look into his word, the Bible, which speaks of Jesus, which points to Jesus, which perfectly reveals Jesus. And the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that as we behold Jesus, as we look to him and his glory in the Bible, we are transformed. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, into Christ's image, the image of God, from one degree of glory to another. As we look to Jesus in His Word, we become more like Him. And as we've seen already, Jesus' glory is displayed best in His incarnate, sacrificial work on our behalf. And that's what the Bible faithfully testifies to. So we behold Jesus in his word, but then we also, the second word, imitate. We don't stop by just looking at Jesus. True beholding, really seeing Jesus as he is and being changed, results in and requires imitation. So just a few verses later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, here's what Paul says about imitating Jesus. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. In other words, those who know and behold Jesus will become like him. We will embody the gospel by looking like a crucified king by looking like him in his death by taking things on our shoulders that we don't have to be responsible for but we take them for because we're serving others we're throwing ourselves to the bottom of the pile we're taking on other people's sin and shouldering it and their brokenness and shouldering it and their hurt and pain and shouldering it and it will look like death to the world when we imitate jesus We'll embody the gospel through incarnational presence and sacrificial living. Let's behold Jesus. Let's imitate Jesus. So how do we become like Jesus? We behold him. We look at him in his word, especially in his incarnational presence, sacrificial living, and then we imitate him. We become incarnationally present. We die to ourselves and live sacrificially for the most vulnerable. That's what it means to embody the gospel through generous love. And there are so many ways we can do this. We can do this every day in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces, in our community. But to make it a little bit more practical this morning, I'm going to actually have a guest come up, my own son, Caleb, who is our youth director, and have him share with you some of the ways that youth ministry in this church is embodying the gospel through incarnational presence. So, Caleb, will you come up? 
Hello, hello. Hey, yo, what's up, church family? How's it going? Um, so my name is Caleb, and if you didn't know, uh, I'm the youth director here. And I was asked to come up and share a little bit today. Before I do that, I want to pray real quick. Now you're probably thinking, man, we've prayed a lot. Well, we're going to hit it again, so bow your heads with me. Uh, Jesus, um, I just thank you for this time we get to come um, be in your presence, Lord. And I pray that today um, you would speak through me, Lord, that um, our hearts would be open to hear what you have to say. Um, that the words that come out of me would not be mine, but they'd be what you want to say. And you always want to say the right thing. So um, I know it's going to be good. Um, yeah, we just love you and we ask us in your name. Amen. Um, so like I said, I direct the youth ministry here at First Baptist Church. And we have two youth ministries. We have The Rising, and that's the one I'm in charge of. And then I co-direct with my homie Jonas, um, The Landing. And I was asked to come up and share um, what God has been doing in those places and how we're embodying the gospel in those ministries. Um, but it's been a while since I've gotten to come up here and share about what I do and who I am and why I do it. Um, so I want to take a few minutes and just kind of talk about who I am because there's a lot of there's a lot of new faces and you guys probably don't know me or my heart. So um, I'm just going to share a little bit about myself real quick. So um, I got the privilege of growing up in a Christian household with Christian parents who followed Jesus. Um, but it wasn't till I got to be a teenager um, that I learned what it really meant to follow Jesus, what it looked like to live that out in real life. And I learned that at youth group. And when I started to go into youth group, that's when that really clicked for me because there were leaders, there were two leaders there, um, who were willing to enter into my life. They were willing to get in there. They weren't scared of me. Um, they cared about me. They loved me. They invited me into their home. They fed me. And they got, they got right in my face. They told me what I was doing wrong. They told me what I was doing right. They told me that Jesus loved me. And they weren't, yeah, they weren't afraid to get their hands dirty. And that's what I learned, what it's like to follow Jesus, right? Because we just heard that that's what Jesus did. He wasn't scared to get in people's lives. Um, later in life, when I was about 17 years old, um, I felt like God was saying, hey, you're going to go all in in this youth ministry thing. I want you to jump in. And I was like, oh, God, that's crazy. But all right, let's do it. So I jumped in. Um, and then about a year and a half ago, somebody thought it was a good idea to hand me the reins, the whole thing. And now here we are. Um, and that's kind of how I got where I am. And that's why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, but I was asked to come up and talk about what's happening at the rising and the landing. And we just heard about what embodying the gospel looks like. And embodying the gospel, we learned, um, looks like acting like Jesus. And we saw that Jesus entered into people's lives, right? He wasn't distant. He wasn't scared. He rolled up his sleeves. And he got in there, and he loved people. He loved people with everything he had. He didn't just love them with a little bit. He loved them with everything, even to the point of dying, right? We call that sacrificial love. And it wasn't as if Jesus wasn't popular, right? He wasn't, like, dying for friends. He was like, oh, man, dude, no one will hang out with me but these losers, these guys, they'll hang out with me. Jesus wasn't doing that. He was being followed around by crowds. He was, pretty, he was a pretty big deal to a lot of people. But even though he was a big deal, um, he would drop everything to help out a homeless guy. He would drop everything to talk to a sick lady. He would stop what he was doing to hang out with some kids because he cared about them. He'd show them he cared that, for them and that he loved them. If you've read the Bible, you know that these are the kind of people that Jesus spent his time with. He spent his time with 
the least of these. Like we were just talking about, he spends time with poor people, with hungry people, with children, right? With a bunch of ragtag local losers he called his best friends. He chose to go hang out with those guys, right? He probably could have been super important if he wanted to. But embodying the gospel is living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. And loving like Jesus means that we take time, we give up our time, we sacrifice it. Maybe we give up our popularity, our friends, whatever we want, and we give it up in order to love people like Jesus. And this gets messy, right? People's lives aren't clean. And maybe people Jesus is calling you to hang out with are like the people he hung out with. Well, I know they are, actually. He's calling you to hang out with the least of these. Some of these... They might have abusive home lives. They might not have enough to eat. They might be in an unsafe living situation. They might have a mental illness. But they might, they might even pee on the walls. Okay, but, but God is calling you to love these people. And that's what we're doing at the rising and the landing, is we're loving those people. Um, so first I want to talk about the landing and tell a few stories about what God's doing there and what our heart is behind that. So if you didn't know... Um, the Landing, it's an after-school program for middle and high schoolers. And our goal with that is to provide kids with a safe place to come after school where they can get a free meal, they can hang out, they don't have to worry about being threatened, okay? Because a lot of the kids we work with, they don't have safe home lives, okay? So they can come, they can hang out, um, and they get to build healthy relationships with adults who care about them. And our goal in that is to meet kids' needs and to love them like Jesus did by giving up our time and resources, and since we've started this ministry, we've seen as many as 35 kids come on a given day. And that's crazy because it's only been up for four months. It took like three, four years to get 30 kids to go to youth group. So like it's exploding really fast. And we've seen a lot of kids with some hard lives come and really get help at the landing. So I'm going to tell a few stories. So we have a brother and a sister who um, started coming to the landing on a regular basis and their parents work all night. So when these kids wake up, they go to school. They don't see their parents. When they get home, their parents are already asleep. Um, their parents aren't around to help them with homework, to teach them stuff. Their parents order them a pizza every night, and that's what they go home and eat. And that's every day of their life. Okay, and now they've started coming to the landing. They get to hang out with some adults who actually care about them, who are willing to stop their normal life, their normal everyday nine to five and come down and say, hey, I care about you because Jesus cares about you. I'm loving you because Jesus loves you. And let's, let's hear about your life, right? They get to do that every week now. They didn't get that before. Um, we have another student um, and he's got an unsafe living situation. He's got a dad who is a stepdad now or something and he's in danger from him. So he didn't have a man in his life who he can be around. So he lives with his mom, but he doesn't have a man in his life speaking in, teaching him things he needs to know um, to succeed in the world. And now he gets to come to the landing. He gets to hang out with Tom. He gets to learn how to install some lights, right? He gets that father-son time he didn't have. And he's not getting that anywhere else. But now he gets it at the landing. And then I'm going to talk about the rising a little bit. The rising, oh, my baby, the youth ministry here at First Baptist Church. And our goal with that is to give students the opportunity to experience the love of Jesus. And we do that by acting like Jesus. And we give up our time, and we slow down, and we show kids that we care about them when they come on a Tuesday night or wherever we might encounter them. And um, the other thing we want to do there is disciple kids in their relationship with God. And when Jesus was discipling people, he invited them all the way into his life. 
That's how I was discipled when I was a high schooler. I was invited into my leader's home, right? I was invited to go along for the ride. And I got to see how they followed Jesus, and that taught me how to follow Jesus. And that's the same way that Jesus discipled people, right? He went and grabbed the disciples. He said, hey, you're coming with me. We're going to live together. We're going to eat together. We're going to hang out. We're going to do ministry together. And that's how you're going to learn how to follow me. And now I'm at the point where I actually can't escape middle schoolers and high schoolers. They like, follow me around everywhere. It's like I have a disease or something. But it's super cool because they get to see how I'm following Jesus. They see what I'm doing. And I get to teach them and be like, hey, this is how we follow Jesus. This is what we're doing. Now you go do it. Right? And some of the fruit of that is we now have a student leadership team of seven kids. We also have Birch, who's a leader in training, but I'll include him. And I've been discipling them for like a year and a half. And they are they are awesome, right? They are they went from being like passive consumers of this ministry to being servant leaders. Like I depend on them every week. I was sitting there the other night and I was like, we could not pull this off without these guys. Because they they lead worship, they run games, right? They help with snack, they help with cleanup, they help with setup. And I really depend on them, right? And they're like, those kids are going to be the future of God's church. Um, now, these are just like a few of the things that God has done in the youth ministry recently. Like, I can't tell you every story because it only gave me 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something. But if you want to hear more, come talk to me. I've got a million of them. Um, and these are just a few of the lives that God has touched. And in the past year at the Rising, um, we have doubled in size. Like, we went from having 30 kids to having 60 kids a night. They're packed to the walls. We run out of chairs, like, every night. And those kids are all here to hear about Jesus, to experience his love. And they're not the nicest. They're not the prettiest. Sometimes they hurt you. Like, I've been injured, but it's fine, okay? But those are the people that Jesus calls us to spend our time with, right? And this is all super cool, that we have all these kids and their discipleship is happening, but we have a problem. Um, we have a very limited amount of adult help. We have a very limited amount of people willing to step in and disciple people. Like, we are so short-staffed. If we get any more short-staffed, we're probably going to have to shut it down. But Jesus said, like, he's got a plan, and he said this was going to happen. He said that the harvest is going to be plentiful and the laborers are going to be few, and there is plenty to harvest, But we need people to get in there, and we need people to embody the gospel we've been talking about. We need people to act like Jesus and get into kids' lives and show them who Jesus is and what it's like to follow him. We need people to be all in for Jesus. Because these kids are the future, and they need to get pursued, they need to get raised up, and they need to get discipled, or we're going to lose them. Like, Charlie already said this. I don't even, after he said that, I didn't even know I was going to come up here. But, like, they're the future, and we got to pour into them now, or we're going to, What's going to happen? We're all dead. I don't know. I guess we just won't have church. I mean, just throwing that out there. It's scary. Okay. But I'm going to end with this. If you feel God pulling on your heart today, right, to embody the gospel, maybe at the rising, if you feel him saying, hey, you know, this is your time, I'm going to urge you to jump all in. Because when I jumped all in, it changed my life. Like, believe it or not, guys, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. This is all God. And, like, look what he did. Like, isn't this crazy? Like, I sit there all the time, like, this is insane. Like, I, I'm not talented. It's not like my talent. It's not like my incredible good looks that's bringing all these kids here. Like, this is God, and he's moving, and all I had to do was say, okay, I'm in. Right? So what would happen if we all said we're in? We all said, let's disciple some kids. 
Like, I... Just saying. Like, stuff would get crazy up in here. And I think that would be awesome. So that's all I've got. So I'm going to pray. And then I think Pastor Mike's going to come up here and wrap it up. Jesus, uh, I just pray that you would move in this place, in these people, um, that you would stir up this congregation to go forward and make disciples, to embody the gospel, um, to be Jesus in the streets, to not let the things in this world like hold us back, but to go all in for you. Because that's what matters. Like That's what's going to last. And we know that, but we forget that all the time. And I just pray that we would not forget that. I pray that if we are getting stirred up right now, that we wouldn't leave this place and just let it fizzle out, but that we would feed that fire, Lord. I pray that just revival would strike this town. But I pray that you would send help, that you would send laborers into the harvest because the laborers are getting tired. And Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all you've done. Amen. You want to stand up here and hold my hand while I finish? Okay. Good job, Caleb. Proud of you. You're doing good work. Um, and I just want to finish with a few thoughts here. Uh, the rising and the landing are really only two of many avenues for embodying the gospel in this church and in this community or wherever you're at. You can advocate for the unborn in our community through working with or volunteering at or donating to the crisis or pregnancy resource centers. You can care for foster kids. A couple weeks ago, we had Jana Hill from from Kindred Connections share with us about ways you could help advocate for and care for foster kids. There's connections through the tribe at Warm Springs and also DHS to take care of foster kids. They don't have homes. I heard... A statistic the other day that there's uh, something like half a million foster kids, or no, is it a million foster kids in the United States and half a million churches or something? No, a million churches, half a million foster kids. So if every two churches took a foster kid, we'd figure it out. It wouldn't be a problem. Uh, You can advocate and work for the homeless and those in poverty. Joe shared about the food pantry earlier. There's a redemption house, a women's shelter, and a men's shelter in town. Um, You can join our visitation team and visit the the widows and those who are isolated or homebound and and care for those who are sick. There's a lot of ways to embody, embody the gospel. And every single one of us has three things. We have time, we have talents, and we have treasures. So where do you give your time? Where does your time go to? Does it go towards the kingdom or does it go towards your own pursuits? What abilities and skills has God given you with which you might serve others? What are certain ways that he's made you that you can disciple others and care for them and love them? Where is your money going? How are you using your, the dollars and cents that God funnels through you to build up his kingdom and embody the gospel? Now, let's take a moment here. I never talk about the budget when I'm preaching, very rarely. Um, but we did post the budget this morning, and I was, I was looking through our church budget. I just want you to hear some of the numbers and where our money goes as a church and for the budget. Over 15% of our uh, budgeted money goes towards funding local and global missions. 
So things like the Conference Center and Young Life and CEF and the Pregnancy Resource Center and the Redemption House and several missionaries overseas who are embodying and proclaiming the gospel in Israel and in South Africa and in Europe and in other places, Canada. So over 15% of our money goes out to fund these missions. Over 11%, or about 12% of our budget, is to fund ministries. It's money that goes into the youth ministry, into the food pantry, into benevolence ministries, music ministry. It's what makes us, allows us to be able to do some of the different ministries that we do. The biggest chunk of our budgeted dollars goes towards staff. Almost 60% goes towards funding, mostly part-time, about nine staff members, eight or nine staff members, who lead the ministries that embody the gospel and proclaim the gospel in our church. And so by funding those people to do their jobs, to free them up, to free Caleb up, to do youth ministry and do the landing, to free Alicia up to do women's ministry, um, to do all these ministries takes dollars. And we spend a lot of those dollars on people so that they can help do the ministry and lead those ministries. Less than 10% of our budget goes into taking care of this building. It's not very much money to keep the lights on, keep the heat on, all those things. Obviously, we're spending a big chunk on a parking lot this year. But less than 10% goes to taking care of the building. Less than 5% pays for things like staples and toilet paper. Okay? So we're not throwing our money in the toilet, literally. We're using it, and we're purposely using the budget that God has given us to do ministry, to fund ministry, to fund the embodiment of the gospel. So I guess the call this morning is this. If you consider First Baptist to be your church family, then invest here in the kingdom. Invest with your time and your talent and your treasures. The youth ministry, for one, is desperately in need of people to help, to love on, to disciple, to mentor the kids who are showing up in this building every week. Every Tuesday night, 60-some kids from our community showing up in this building saying, hey, care about me. So let's lean in and care about them. There are other ministries where you can invest time and energy, seeing and meeting needs, and honestly, we should all be giving. It's my belief that just in the pockets in this room alone, we could fund the landing for the next 10 years. God has the money He wants to get it to the landing and the rising and to these ministries. How are we going to help him do that? How are we going to lean in with our time, our talents, and our treasures? And that's something for us to consider as we come to the Lord's table today. God, how do you want to use me to embody the gospel through incarnational presence and through sacrificial living? Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you this morning. We come in Jesus. We come through our Savior, Jesus Christ, grateful for all he has done for us. Grateful for the eternal plan that you have fulfilled in him. Grateful that he is uniting, you are uniting all things under one head in Christ. And that you've given him as head over the church, which is his body, which is the fullness of him who fills all in all. And God, you want to work in your church. You want to work in your body. You want to fill this community with your love and your presence, your sacrificial, generous love towards these people. And God, you've called us to participate. 
You've called us to lean in. You've called us to love the least of these, your brothers and sisters, because as we do it, we love you. So Jesus, we confess this morning that we love you. We pray that we would go out of here filled and empowered with your spirit to actually love you, not only in word, but also in deed. So as we come to the table this morning, would you draw our hearts to Jesus? Would you draw our hearts to adore and love and imitate, to behold our crucified King and to live lives that look just like his? God, we need your help. We can't do this alone. So we pray that your spirit would empower us and urge us and move us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.